Let's get to it. Why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 is where we are. Before we get started, I have a little assignment for you, an experiment here. Um, Look to the person on your left. Go ahead and do that right now. And then look to the person on the right. Which person looks most holy? (laughs) That's my question. (laughs) Now wait. Uh, (laughs) Well, As it turns out, that's exactly what the Pharisees of Jesus' time, they'd sit around doing. They were obsessed with who looked the most holy, who seemed to be the most holy of all. And and man, if you were a Pharisee, you wanted to be perceived as the most holiest of all those people. And so they carried themselves differently than everybody else. And they, they behaved differently, thinking there were certain things that were holy. But meanwhile, Jesus comes on the scene and says, ah, that's not holy. Uh, in fact, he gets really down on the, the things that they thought were holy, and it was just legalism, and it was ugly, um, and it was judgmental. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, outward appearance can be extremely deceiving. I, I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, Jesus is going to demonstrate this with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. And he's gonna call them out because he sees their thoughts and their intentions and he knows their, their um, ugly, you know, legalistic, weird self-righteousness that they held. Um, but man, you'd almost, you'd almost see Jesus judging what was holy when he'd see like a, a, a guy that was a Gentile centurion. And he said to that guy, man, I've not seen so great a faith, nope, not in all of Israel. In fact, Jesus is calling these Gentiles that were in their midst, in a sense, you could almost say more holy than the holy men of Israel. And this would have blown their minds to think that Jesus had a whole different, you know, uh, term of what was holy. And that's why these guys, these religious guys hated Jesus. And we're seeing that as we get further and further into this study. Um, Don't forget what the Lord identified back, way back in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse seven. Do you remember when they were uh, trying to find the next king? They were looking at their height, their stature and all this stuff. But but the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, seven, the Lord said to Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. I'm convinced that it wasn't just the days of the first century of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all those guys, but all throughout the ages, there's been some weird perceptions of what seems holy and what is not holy. And it's weird because all throughout the ages, I think we mostly get it wrong. You know, when I was a kid, it was a different thing. What would, what would, the, what would you know, a holy man look like? Well, when I was a kid, I remember some people perceived holiness as the older man speaking in King James language. Do you guys remember that? Where, where older pastors, you know, and I understand the idea and what was behind it, but there was somehow, like if you, if you used a few these and thous and verilies and didst and stuff like that, if you, if you use those words, somehow that was more holy talk. If you said, thou didst sustaineth all things, uh, and it just sounded like you had a lisp or something. Like, it's just wrong. Uh, King James was not holy. 1611 is a long time after Jesus was on the planet. And the King James English was not a holy English. Um, but it was just a translation of the Bible that sort of, in our day, we sort of perceived that as 
being holy. And I think I've watched that sort of come and go. Not a lot of people speak King James anymore. I'm kind of thankful for that because that, that wasn't really holy necessarily. We thought it was, some people did. It was a perception of holiness. But then maybe for some people, not me, but do you remember in the 80s, the televangelists, when they started wearing the fancy suits and the fancy hair and they ran back and forth on the stage with a, a towel that matched their suit? Did you see that? Remember the matching sweat towel with the suit thing? And they were up there just going, passion, man, passion. And people thought, ooh, now that's, that's holy right there. Turns out they were all ripoff artists, the televangelists. They were thieves and like Judas Iscariot, a lot of them. Uh, it was ugliness. But what, what, you know, after that, now, now I'm glad the televangelist thing seems to be going by the wayside. Most people discern the televangelists, I think. I, well, I probably shouldn't say that. I mean, I, there's still those guys out there. But, but it comes in different packages as, as the years go by. Could, could today's version of holiness be perceived as some young hipster pastor feigning intellectual prowess um, and, and saying things that seem intelligent but really kind of aren't? I wonder about that. Uh, what about those who, who can deconstruct their faith the, fir- their faith the first and the hardest? Uh, well, that's holy. Deconstruct your faith. And that's a big trend right now. But I don't know. I think Jesus would say, nope, that's not holy. Um, a person who talks slowly and very holy and speaks in somber tones with candles lit behind them. If you talk with a holy, slow voice, people will... Th- Ridiculous. What are you, golem? Put away your candles and stop being a weirdo. You know, it's funny. We just, we perceive things as holy. Oh, the person that, when they worship and they hold their heartburn uh, like this, uh, that's holy. What, what do we perceive as holy? Like, you know, and I'm not, you gotta be careful because, because it gets back to what we were talking about, you know, before, even last week, about how we can be judgmental of things that really are holy. But if you're trying to appear holy and what have you, you can know you're on the wrong path because um, holiness, well, it's something that's very different than what we often view it to be. And Jesus is gonna go to head-to-head battle with the guys that were perceived as the holiest guys around. And Jesus is gonna go after it and they're gonna go after him. And it all really hits hard here in chapter 12 of the book of Matthew. And it's kind of an interesting thing. If you recall in Matthew chapter 10, one through 10, I should say, we've seen the revelation of the king. Remember, Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. Um, We'll see how the other gospels compare, but just remember that Matthew presents Jesus as king of the Jews. But chapters uh, 11 through 13 is the rejection of the king. And that's where we are. We're right in the middle of that time where they're, they're, they're choosing to reject the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus. And, and this is what's gonna happen. And, um, and by the way, one of the, the biggest issues of rejecting Jesus is gonna kind of start or center on the topic of the Sabbath day. Um, where does that word Sabbath come from? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. Uh, if you go to Israel, they'll say Shabbat Shalom, which means, you know, peace on the Sabbath kind of thing. And, um, and so that's where it comes, Sabbath or Shabbat. Uh, is the, the day of rest that was uh, required of the Jews and also in the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the law of Moses. Uh, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Um, and so what happened was, and if you've been with us, you know this, but they went to extremes to, to try their hardest to keep the Sabbath as holy as they knew how, but holiness is a relative term and they started doing weird stuff. And we looked at that even on Sunday. 
Um, and, and you tend to throw the whole, the, get the whole wrong idea by certain rules. It'd be like, you know, if your teacher in elementary school said you can't chew gum in class. And so what'd you do? You went and shut down all the gum factories in, in the world. And so no more chewing gum all over the world. I can see that happening today, actually. Um, but um, weird days that we're living. No more gum in Oregon. Um, but, um, but, you know, it, it was like you missed the whole point. Uh, there's a reason why the Sabbath was meant to be kept holy. But they started saying, well, that means no carrying no weight more than a dried fig. Uh, don't carry your false teeth, no false leg. We talked about that on Sunday. Did you know that if you, you couldn't even spit on the ground? Because you might be guilty of making mud or mortar uh, or bricks uh, by mixing spit and, and mud, uh, you're actually doing work on the Sabbath. So you can't spit and no ointment, but you could bandage, but no ointment on a wound. Um, and whatever you do, you can't get your sheep out of a hole on a ditch uh, on a Sabbath day. Um, so on this revelation of the king, Jesus is revealed as king, but then they, the religious leaders say, that, that's not our king. Look at him, he doesn't even know how to keep the Sabbath. This is the big theme that they're gonna hit uh, tonight, and this is going to be their basis largely for rejecting Jesus, the king. The rejecting of the king is going to largely be of the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus, you know, is going to say stuff like this. Um, you know, we, we, we ended uh, last week on these verses. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, this was what the Sabbath day was originally meant to be, a day of rest. But it became a day of total Bummer. Uh, man, you couldn't do anything fun. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. And if you were, you know, it was, it was like you had to work really hard to make sure you didn't break the laws of the Sabbath. And it sort of ruined the whole thing. And so here's Jesus coming with an entirely different message. Man, coming to me. I'll make your load easy, your burden light. The Pharisees were laying heavy burdens on everybody, saying, you got to do this and you got to do that, rules and regulations. But Jesus is the source of rest that they all long for. And Jesus makes that claim. Um, and so what, what we're gonna see them do is start to build their case. Boy, case building is kind of an interesting practice, especially when you're a religious, you know, zealot uh, legalist. Uh, these guys were gonna build their case against Jesus to say he's a breaker of the Sabbath. And uh, the first point of their case is the case of the corn. Uh, what's the case of the corn? Well, we'll see that as we get into this. But the idea of what is holy and what the Sabbath is all about, um, as, as it turns out, Jesus and his disciples are perceived as breaking the laws of the Sabbath. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 12, verse one. It says, at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the ears of, the, of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. Now, this is an interesting point that you need to be aware of. Did Jesus ever break the law? No, he didn't. But he, he's doing it right now. Well, this might be the accusation. But you have to understand, the laws of the Sabbath that were given there in the Old Testament to the, to the children of Israel they said nothing about not picking corn on the Sabbath. That was just their dumb rules they added later. The Jews, again, added their own, I'm gonna call these, as we come across these in the New Testament, we'll call these the traditions of men or the laws of men. So they passed laws 
to make sure that they really didn't break the laws that they perceived was God's intention, but they were way off. So when Jesus is picking corn with his disciples on the Sabbath day, he's not breaking the law. Uh, not at all. He's just breaking man's traditions. And uh, that's an important thing. Now, you might say the Jews had their own laws and aren't you supposed to keep the laws of the land? It's an interesting thing. Is this like, in some ways you say, is this civil disobedience where Jesus is doing something? I don't think Jesus was trying to do any civil disobedience. He, he and his disciples were hungry. That's what it says here. And when you're hungry, uh, it's biblical, eat. Uh, I love that. It's a life verse here uh, for me. Uh, when you're hungry, eat. Well, be that as it may, uh, the, the, the stupid laws, Jesus ignores those traditions of man because they were not God's intent at all. Um, so man added the rule about picking corn on the Sabbath. Now you might say, but Brett, they're also stealing from someone's field. Um, well, that's not actually the case, right? Um, if you know the Old Testament law, which Jesus never broke, but he always kept, um, was it lawful for Jesus' and his disciples to go to some, some other person's field and glean corn? Well, yes. In fact, jot this down in your notes. Deuteronomy 23, 25. This was the rule. This is, by the way, instead of welfare, instead of uh, you know, having homeless people in tents everywhere, um, they had a plan. Uh, because it was an agrarian culture, the agriculture was what everybody did. Um, part of the rule was, when you come into the, uh, the standing corn of thy neighbor, when thou mayest pluck, uh, um, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. In other words, you can go and pick corn, just a few you know, ears of corn, just enough for your family or whatever to survive, but you can't come in there with a harvester, you know, already you know, getting the whole field. You can't do that, or a sickle in that case, uh, where you're actually harvesting his field. But you, there was supposed to be parts along the side that people could, well, the word is glean. That's where the word gleaning came from in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Ruth, gleaning in the fields, great story. But that was part of the laws of the Jews. So they were not harvesting, just what I would call snacking. And God said that a farmer was to extend this courtesy to travelers and the people, neighbors uh, that needed to have a little food. So, um, but it, this is not what the Pharisees were mad about, that Jesus was actually picking someone else's corn. They were, they were mad that Jesus and his disciples were technically doing work on the Sabbath day because they were picking corn and they were picking corns heavier than a dried fig. So, you know, you've obviously, obviously breaking the law. So this is the case of the corn when they're building their case against Jesus, um, which is unfortunate. They were, um, you know, what, what, here's something I would just ask. These uh, Pharisees, what are they doing out in the field watching Jesus pick corn? Because the Pharisees are supposed to be in their home on the Sabbath. They're not supposed to leave. Um, does anybody know how probably did these Pharisees rationalize um, going from their house out to this field where they were watching Jesus pick the corn? Anybody? Yes. Remember that the, by this time, they, they'd gone crazy with us, even to this day, the, the, this idea of the law of a roof, the roof line, where they would, they would tie, a, 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 it started with like ropes and sheets and stuff. And they would tie from one house doorknob to another house doorknob, which would make it technically one house. And so that line would connect. So you could go from this house to that house and you were all in good standing. They thought, well, cool, let's just keep connecting houses. By the Sabbath day, if you had a big enough line, you'd go all over town. Um, and did you know that Portland, Oregon has an Aruv line? Manhattan has an Aruv line. You know what that is? It's a piece of fishing line 
that goes all the way around, look it up. It's an amazing thing. It goes all the way around Manhattan. If you're a Jew on the Sabbath, you can go anywhere in Manhattan because you're within the roof line. Do you think that was the intent of the Sabbath day? Um, you know, it's like a technicality, a way to figure out how to break the law, you know. Um, but the law never even said you couldn't leave your house. That was just their dumb rules. You're supposed to rest. It was, a, it was meant to be a blessing. Um, so what was Jesus's response to their accusations? You're breaking the Sabbath by picking corn, doing work on the Sabbath. Well, let's see his response. And this is a really intense, his response. I love Jesus's response. Verse three, but he said unto them, have you not read what David um, did when he was uh, and hungered and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Um, and it says, neither, them, uh, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. Ooh. Now, like, we, we need to kind of break this down because Jesus is, is making an argument here that's pretty powerful. And he appeals to them on several levels. And I, I'd like you to jot down these levels because these are important levels of who Jesus actually is. And the first level he approaches is Jesus as the rightful king. Number one, Jesus as king. Uh, this is an important thing. How does he do that? Well, let's, let's kind of break this down. Jesus, uh, by the way, when, when you're, you know, someone's building a case against you and arguing with you about stuff, especially, you know, when you're talking about spiritual things, what's the best thing to do? Is always go to scripture. I love how Jesus, when he was accused by the devil in Matthew chapter four, we saw him go to scripture every single time. Scripture, scripture, scripture. Uh, that's what gave Jesus sort of the authority. Although you and I know that Jesus was the living word, the word incarnate. But Jesus, when he would defend himself, he would go to scripture, and I love that. That's what you and I should do. If somebody's arguing with you about something spiritual, don't say, well, you know what my opinion is, or what I like to think. Don't say that stuff. Say, the scriptures say. See, that's what Jesus does right here. He says, have you not read what David did? He goes right to the Old Testament scripture. Um, that's an important thing. You're always gonna be on safe ground if you're letting scripture you know, be your defense. And, and especially if you're defending scripture. Uh, I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said when they, his students asked him, you know, how do you defend the Bible? He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let, it out, let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, just let it out of the cage. Uh, that's all you gotta do. And that's what, that's what a good Christian will do. And, and defending the scripture, you just let it defend itself. Let scripture defend itself. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's gonna use scripture to defend his actions. So he refers to David. Now you say, Brett, what does that have to do with Jesus, the, the rightful king? Well, he's referring to a story that's in 1 Samuel 21. And this story that he's referring to in 1 Samuel 21, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not, but um, he says, have, have you not read what David did? In other words, you guys should already know this. Uh, you guys, this should already have been built into your culture and what you believe and how you act, but you, you, haven't you read? 
Haven't you read this story? In other words, the Old Testament stories should have helped dictate their belief system, but somehow this scripture never got to them. First Samuel 21. Um, so what's the deal? Well, God's mercy in the Old Testament. Let's, let's flip back to First Samuel 21, if you would. Keep your finger here in Matthew. Go to First Samuel 21. Uh, David, of course, was anointed to be the next king of Israel. He was the rightful king at this time, and yet the powers that be would not let him, that is King Saul. He was already king. Uh, he was the evil king that was chasing David to kill him. Um, even though God already said, David's the next king. Saul is, I've, I've withdrawn my anointing from uh, King Saul. In fact, the Bible says God withdrew his mercy from King Saul. So King Saul's kind of losing his marbles. He's you know, in, uh, you know, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. David's anointed, but he's running for his life. And David's mighty men, what happened? Well, he and his men are hungry. So they go to this place here in 1 Samuel 21 to the priest of Nob. Sounds like something in Lord of the Rings or something. Check it out, verse one of chapter 21. Then came David to Nob uh, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said to him, oh, why art thou alone and no man with thee? I mean, Picture if you're a Himalek and you know just enough to be dangerous. Like, okay, King Saul's losing his marbles. He's the king. David's anointed to be the next king. But sometimes David's good with Saul and sometimes David's bad with Saul. And I'm a little nervous. What's David and all these men doing here? Uh, that would be a little weird. You'd be like, what's going on? Well, David answers in verse two. David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee and what I have anointed, uh, appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now, by the way, this is interestingly enough, a lie. The king didn't send David on a, a mission. The king was hunting him down like a dog. And uh, David was running for his life from the king. But he's just trying to get this Ahimelech uh, priest. Hey, uh, the king sent me on a mission. We're out of food. We could, we could use some help here. Uh, so he says, verse three, now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand or what there is present. And the priest answered, David said, there is no common bread under my hand, but there is the hallowed or holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women, <laughs> what's that all about? There's holy bread from the, te the, 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 the temple there uh, and, and they're, they're not supposed to eat it. Only the priests are supposed to eat it. And the priests are not supposed to be, you know, uh, sleeping with their wives while they're eating this bread. There's kind of a whole nother thing. We don't have time to get into for that. But all that to say, David, verse five, answered the priest and said unto him, of a truth, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in a manner common. Yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread and there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. This is the story Jesus is referring to. What does that have to do with Jesus and his disciples picking corn on the Sabbath? Everything, everything. How's it work? Well, interesting, David was the rightful king. Jesus was the rightful king. Um, king Saul, the authorities, the powers that be, rejected David as king. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rightful authorities, they rejected Jesus as king. David and his men were hungry. Jesus and his men are hungry. You see the parallel so far? But here's where Jesus makes it a brilliant argument. 
He said that David sort of technically broke the law, if you would, by having his men eat the holy bread from the table of showbread. Why? Because they were hungry. And should you let them starve to death or should you let them eat bread and let them live? And, and the point is the priest reluctantly said, uh, yeah, we should probably let the guys eat some bread, even though it is holy, let's, let's do this. Even, it was, if you would, it was, this is important, it was love over the law. Now, what's this table of showbread? Well, if you remember in the tabernacle and, and what have you, the various furniture items, you know, that in the holy place, there was the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. And that table of showbread was where the priest would go in and eat that holy bread. And that, that little table uh, kind of depicted like in this art, artwork here. And it was the, the matzo bread that they would eat uh, as part of the holy bread of the Lord. Um, but when David was given this showbread, you know, um, uh, th this was sort of um, going against their rules and their laws, even the Jewish laws. And that was in fact breaking laws. Jesus wasn't even breaking laws, which is interesting, but David did. But the point is, Jewish oral tradition said David was in his right to do that. Why? They, they gave it two reasons. And you and I might say, well, it's because uh, David was, um, you know, the, um, was hungry and they should have loved him. Well, that wasn't their reason. The reason the Pharisees would say David was in his right, uh, because he was technically the rightful king. And because he was king, he could kind of do whatever he wanted. That's sort of what the Pharisees would teach about the stories of the priest of Nob. By the way, this story goes really wacko. A guy named Doeg sees this whole thing, goes and tells King Saul, and King Saul comes and slaughters all the priests of Nob. Like, it's, it's really a horrible story. A lot of horrible things happen because of the David eating the bread. Um, but I don't have time to go into all that. You can listen to our teaching from 1 Samuel 21 if you wanna go back. It's an amazing story. Um, but the, the one thing that Jesus is arguing is Jesus is arguing at Jesus as king and that love always should override the law. That's kind of part of his, his thing, that Jesus is love and the perfect fulfillment of the law at the same time. The Bible tells us the law kills, Jesus revives. The law judges us, Jesus does not condemn. Like it's so great to see Jesus in this role. But, um, but on Sunday, we saw this sort of practice in our teaching on Sunday, man with the withered hand. You know, and Jesus used the same argument about, you know, how, much, how many of you would leave your sheep? Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's love over the law. You wouldn't leave your sheep in a hole. Um, I thought I'd bring this video just one more time because it's just so much fun. If you missed it on Sunday, you wouldn't leave your little sheep in a hole and let it just die there if it was the Sabbath day. Um, so you'd lovingly pull it out like this little guy. And then all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Uh, if you missed that on Sunday, I thought we better show that again because that there is priceless if you ask me. <laughs> um, so, slow-mo. <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah, anyway, uh, sorry. Um, secondly, we see Jesus, his argument for his first part of his, sorry about that. His first part of his argument was Jesus as king. Um, and he uses his argument that, um, you know, which one of you would leave a sheep in a hole? Like the, 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 the law, you know, the law of the Sabbath, you've got it all wrong, he's saying. It's, it's, you know, the man was made, you know, man was not made for the Sabbath, Sabbath day was made for man. You guys got it all wrong. 
but love should supersede that of the law. And so Jesus presents that, but we also see his argument in the same way, presenting himself as Jesus as the king of kings, even as he puts himself on the same level as David. Do you think the, um, the Pharisees liked that Jesus was putting himself on the same level as David, the king of history of Israel? They, they did not like that. Although you and I know now that he's way better than the king of, uh, of the Old Testament, David, because uh, Jesus is truly the king of kings. But they were just ignorant of that. Now he's gonna present himself in the second part of this as Jesus as the priest. Not only Jesus as king, but Jesus as priest. How do we, how do we see that? Well, back to Matthew 5, uh, chapter 12, um, it says in verse five, he says, or have you not read? So when he says, or, it's like he's shifting his argument to another point. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? What's that? Well, on the Sabbath day, if you're not supposed to rest and you're not supposed to lift anything heavier than a dried fig, Jesus is making all your, what about the sons of Aaron, the priests and the Levites who did the work of the, of the temple in Jerusalem? Did they have to work on the Sabbath? The answer is yes. In fact, I would argue it was really hard work. Um, it, it's something that we pastors kind of think about. Brett, do you take a, you know, Sunday, is Sunday your Sabbath day? Not really. I do five services on the weekend. Uh, I'm comatose by, uh, so you went So like last week, you know, you, you, you do the ironworks on Saturday morning, then you do the two services in the afternoon, and then you do the three services Sunday morning, and then you do a leadership meeting at 4.30, and then Sunday night worship. Like it, it does get a little bit like, well, I need a vacation after the weekend. So, so Sunday's not my Sabbath. I take Monday as my Sabbath day. Um, and you say, well, Brett, that's not the... What about the priests of the, of the temple? They were working hard there. Um, you know, uh, and this is what Jesus is making the argument, even though they did tons of work. How much work did they do, bread? What were they sitting around eating show bread? No. In fact, uh, let me just give you a few scriptures that you might remember. Uh, Leviticus 24, nine says, it shall be Aaron and his sons, they shall eat in the holy place for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire, uh, by a perpetual statute. Um, not only Leviticus 24, we say, but they're just sitting around eating, right? But what did they do to do that? Numbers 28, nine through 10. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs of the first year without spot, two tenth deals of flour for meat offering mingled with oil, drink offering thereof. This is the burnt offering every Sabbath beside the continual burnt offering and his drink offering. All you gotta do is read Leviticus, Numbers, and you start realizing that the priests worked hard on the Sabbath day. They were, they were, bar, they were not just barbecuing uh, and grilling all this meat, but they were, uh, they were actually butchering the lamb. They were actually making all kinds of sacrifice. And, and uh, I grew up on a farm. Butchering is hard business. It's not an easy job. Um, uh, we had these three cows, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Um, and uh, Huey was the first one to go. And I remember watching the butcher come out. And, you know, they do that little 22 Magnum thing. And it just drops the cow. Like, like it's amazing. The, the Huey was gone like that. And I was sad right up until we had those burgers the next night. It was like, whoo, Huey is quite tasty. But um, anyways, but, but the, the work of the butcher, man, that's, that's some hard work right there. That's hard. Uh, I probably shouldn't be talking. Some of you Portlandia people look a little queasy right now. It's like... That's where your meat comes from. You're like, that's why we're vegetarians. Um, well, the Bible says eat meat with Thanksgiving. So anyways, um, so, so these priests, 
the argument Jesus is making, hey, listen, I can do this because the priests worked on the Sabbath. Uh, they were busy, you know, doing the work of the, of the ministry. And, and, uh, and so this is where Jesus finds himself sort of uh, comparing himself to the priest. Uh, do you think this made the, the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees happy that Jesus was comparing himself to the King David and now he's comparing himself to the priests? Uh, he, he, this is probably making them really mad. Um, but as it turns out, the, he says the, the priest, there's sort of a double negative here, you know, says, you know, uh, verse five, um, or have you not read how the, on the law of the Sabbath day, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? In other words, they're working during the Sabbath day. Um, and are blameless, you know, there's, they've done nothing wrong. And so, so Jesus is arguing, man, I've, I've done all this. Now, by the way, this, this theme that Jesus is comparing himself to a priest, the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, will later develop this theme as Jesus as priest quite profoundly. In Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, and Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Um, man, we have a high priest that, you know, has been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Like there's, there's themes of, of Jesus, our high priest. So we see Jesus as uh, king and we see Jesus as priest. Now, for you Bible students, there was no one that should be considered both king and priest. Um, in fact, that was against the rules unless, unless you were the Messiah. The Jews knew that there was only one. Now, by the way, there's a third one. Does anybody remember what's the third one? The prophet. And this is where Jesus continues his argument. This is a threefold argument that Jesus gives. And he's gonna, so he's already argued his role as king, David. He's already argued his role as the priests there uh, making work on the Sabbath uh, because they were the priests. They were supposed to be working on the Sabbath. Um, and now Jesus is gonna make his uh, argument uh, as, as the prophet, prophet, priest, king. And the Messiah of the Jews is the only one who could make this claim. If anybody else tried to do that in Jewish history, they were judged by God. Uh, remember when King Saul started making sacrifice and the Lord says, what are you doing? Samuel freaked out. Um, you know, whenever the kings tried to act in the role of a priest, God would judge them. Why? Because there's only one who can do that. This would be the Messiah, Jesus. But Jesus is making his threefold argument I can do this because I'm prophet, priest, king. Well, Brad, I don't see the prophet thing in here as much. Well, I think we do, but you have to kind of look a little harder. Verses six and seven. He says, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Now, uh, this is Jesus speaking of himself, saying that he is greater than the temple. Do you think this made the Pharisees happy? To them, they would have been freaking out, blasphemy! Like there was nothing, they used to swear on the temple because they believed there was nothing greater than the temple. You know, you know when you say, swear to God, uh, the reason people swear to someone great, you shouldn't, but um, that's because you gotta swear on the greatest thing you can think of. And so that's what the Jews did, when they would swear to the temple. But if you said, I am greater than the temple, that was blasphemy. They, 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 this was gonna be fighting words for the Jews. But um, we see Jesus refer to uh, a prophet here in verses six and seven. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple, but if you had known what this means, implication, they don't. They don't know what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. 
you would not have condemned the guiltless. Again, kind of a double negative thing. Uh, you, you would not have condemned the innocent um, is what they're saying. These guys were trying to condemn Jesus who was innocent of doing anything wrong, innocent of sin. But they're condemning him, why? Because they don't get it. And, and the idea is, you know, we know what this means, this whole thing, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And by the way, this is the second time Jesus refers to this. But where is he referring to this? Well, if you look in your margin, you'll see a reference there to Hosea chapter six. In fact, let's flip over there, Hosea chapter six. Go back in your Bible, maybe a eighth of an inch in your pages, uh, into the, back into the old you know, minor prophets that we were in a few months back. Um, Hosea chapter six, let's review what, what this says about, about this. Um, this is Hosea six, verses four through seven, is really what Jesus is, is referring to. It says in Hosea 6, 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, as the early dew, it goes away. Therefore I have hewed them by the prophets and have slain them by the words of my mouth and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings but they like men have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Here the prophet Hosea is talking about how, um, you know, these people were just brutal and sinful and evil. But one of the things they did is they, um, they didn't show mercy. And the Lord said, I'd have mercy over the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system would be a, a, a beautiful thing that would point to Jesus religiously, but they were into their religious pointing to Jesus, but they weren't really looking at that that way. They were just doing their dutiful legal stuff. And then they were just being brutal to each other and mean. And the Lord's saying, I would have had mercy over sacrifice. This is love over the law, if you would, the same kind of thing. So he's indicting the people on this and, and, he, and he's making this point. Now, this idea of having mercy, this is what Jesus is saying. Um, does this remind you, um, in verse six he even says, for I, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Um, God is more than burnt offerings. In other words, this is where Jesus is saying, I'm greater than this temple. Why? Because the temple would be a place where offering would be made sort of as a symbol for sin. Jesus would be the lamb of God that would be slain for the very sin that they were trying to symbolize. Again, this is where you have to realize Jesus is the real deal. The temple was just a, a thing pointing to the real deal. So which one's greater, the real deal or the temple? It's, it's like that shadow that we've talked about. I'll bring that up maybe again later. But do you remember in Haggai chapter two, verse nine? It's the same kind of notion when Haggai the prophet said, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee, um, but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The people of Israel were dutifully sort of trying to keep their rules and their laws, but they were forgetting just basic goodness and mercy. And this is where Jesus would, um, you know, uh, step in and, uh, and it really challenge them on this whole thing. Um, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, the scriptures reinforce this over and over and over again. Um, and by the way, Haggai 2.9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. Remember we talked about that? Which temple was greater, Zerubbabel's temple or Solomon's temple? And even though Zerubbabel's temple wasn't prettier or fancier or more you know, uh, built stronger, none of that. 
Um, on every level, uh, Zerubbabel's temple was kind of a joke compared to Solomon's temple, except for one thing. The prophet Haggai said, the glory of this temple will be greater than the former. And do you guys remember, why was Zerubbabel's temple gonna be better than Solomon's temple? Anybody? Because Jesus, the fulfillment of the temple, would actually stand in that temple. Um, that's what made that temple greater. It'd be like if, if um, I don't know, a bad example probably, but if you go somewhere you know, to Illinois and there's, there's a big fancy house, something like you'd see here in West Lynn, uh, and then you'd see this little cabin that's off in the woods and you're like, okay, which one of those houses are better? Well, you'd say the, the little cabin in the woods, some of you are like, I like that. But no, I mean, it's a, it's a shabby little cabin. Uh, and, and then there's a fancy house. Which one do you like better? Well, you, what if somebody said, this little cabin is the glory of this is way more. Why? Because Abraham Lincoln lived in this cabin. He was born and lived here and read his books by firelight and all that stuff. You go, oh, let me go see the cabin. You say, forget the West Lynn house or whatever. That's, we see those every day. That's kind of what happened with the temple. The temple became great because Jesus, the one who's greater than the temple, uh, was there. Um, that's kind of important to, to remember. And so John chapter uh, 14, remember, um, you know, Jesus is still gonna reveal this to them that, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These guys haven't realized that he is God in the flesh. Everything Jesus said in these three layers, king, king prophet, priest, um, would have been blasphemy to them. They would have said, this guy makes him equal to God or better than David, better than the temple, better than the prophets. Um, but Jesus is saying some stuff that's actually true and they just don't get it yet. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, uh, which is so important by the way. Um, one of the things you always have to watch out for is when people don't admit that Jesus is who he claims to be. When he says, he that has seen me hath seen the Father. Um, that's why certain religious groups that aren't included within the pale of orthodoxy, they don't get in. Um, and a lot of, I've noticed there's a lot of people who don't notice the details of their own doctrines. Um, but like, you know, Mormonism, for example, very nice people. I like Mormon people. Um, and I think many of them are very sincere and they've been taught by their own writings and their, you know, previous leaders, just wrong stuff. Um, Mormon leaders have taught that Jesus's incarnation was a result of a physical relationship between God and Mary. Uh, that's kind of what, uh, if you don't believe me, look up Journal of Discourses, volume eight, page 115. Um, Mormon doctrine, uh, page 547. Mormons believe Jesus is a God. That's something you need to understand. Well, how could there be more than one God? Well, Mormons, as it turns out, whether they want to admit it or not, are polytheistic. Because not only is Jesus a God, um, but not the same thing as the God, um, but any human can become a God. Uh, Doctrines and Covenants, 132.20, um, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page uh, 345 through 354. I'm, I'm giving you the, if you're curious, I'm giving you the, the uh, information. Mormonism teaches that salvation can be earned by a combination of faith and good works. That's the LDS Bible Dictionary, page 697. The reason I go over this is because I, I mention stuff like this. The Mormons believe in a different Jesus than we do, and then I get letters. I, I'm a Mormon, and I listened to your teachings, and I liked it right up until you said that. And I wanna tell you guys that are following the Mormon faith, it's been tweaked radically, and you should be suspicious 
I mean, shouldn't you be suspicious, Joseph Smith, having all these wives and Brigham Young, 57 wives, and um, you know, there's all kinds of weird doctrines, uh, polygamy, and uh, you know, if, uh, up until fairly recent history, black people couldn't be in the Mormon church. Like, they have all kinds of things that were totally wacko. Uh, shouldn't you be a little suspicious of your own doctrines and covenants? Um, and a lot of times I've noticed most Mormons don't really dive in to see what their founders actually taught. Um, I'm a big fan of saying, let's, let's dive deep into what the Bible actually says and watch out for that Book of Mormon because they, they made another testament. It's another, another gospel, if you would. And Paul said, don't, don't give in to that other gospel, that other testament. Uh, it, it, let that angel that reveals that other testament be what? Accursed. Hello? When you go drive by Lake Oswego and you see the Mormon t- temple there, the beautiful building, but the little golden statue on top, you have to go, that dude's accursed because Moroni is the one who gave Joseph Smith the plates, the glasses, the, the you know, Book of Mormon, really, and it's another testament. And Paul said, if we or, or um, anyone brings you another gospel, let that angel or us or anyone be accursed. So it's important that we don't fall back into kind of a Pharisee mindset where we diminish who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is proving that in his three-layer argument, prophet, priest, king, which uh, bolsters the notion that he is the Messiah. He is the one who is God in the flesh, uh, and he's confirming that uh, as we go. So, um, you know, now that's, that's important. Uh, notice the last phrase there in Matthew 12, um, Whoops, uh, it's, uh, for the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath day, as it, as it says there um, in, in our text. Uh, interesting, uh, you know, isn't it something he's called Lord of the Sabbath? Lord of the Sabbath. Again, this would have been blasphemy to the Pharisees, calling himself Lord of the Sabbath. There's nothing greater than the Sabbath day. That's the most holy of things, you know, and, and this is why the Pharisees are gonna build their case against him. Meanwhile, Jesus is right all along, very important. Uh, so Jesus is, um, he, he, you know, here's where they start to conspire against Jesus, where they wanna kill him. Um, this is Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, prophet, priest, king. Um, by the way, little sideline, how should you and I keep the Sabbath day? Um, I've done old teachings on this. We did a whole teaching on the 10 commandments and I think we gave one Sunday per commandment back in those days of Exodus 20. Um, but in a nutshell, um, you know, uh, Sabbath day is confusing for a lot of people. Well, well, the Sabbath day is technically Saturday and you Christians that meet on Sunday are taking the mark of the beast and all this stuff. Have you heard all that stuff? Um, that's just Looney Tune people saying stupid stuff. Uh, I would challenge them to uh, really prove that biblically. There's nothing in the Bible that really says that. Now the Sabbath day, I do believe it's, it's something that we get to do. It's not a got to because we're no longer under the law. And we have to understand that. But the Sabbath is a principle of God. So here's God saying, I want you to take a day of rest. Um, So we're not under Old Testament law. That's important to remember. Um, But we're actually under grace. Um, But that still means we have to be careful. Uh, Remember on the the Sabbath day and people judging you, don't forget this scripture, Colossians chapter 2. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Again, it's the same thing as the temple I was talking about earlier. If you're all freaked out about the Sabbath, don't be, because guess what? We as Christians have Christ in us. We've got Jesus in us. 
So if people are, you gotta keep the Sabbath, why? Jesus is in us. In the same way that Jesus is arguing, my disciples don't have to keep the Sabbath because guess what? The Sabbath is here. Jesus is the Sabbath rest that they all need. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So it's really kind of a ridiculous argument. And the church of Jesus Christ, guess what? We have Christ in us, the Bible says. Now, does that mean we shouldn't take a day of rest? I think it's a good principle of life that God ordained uh, for us to take one in seven. Um, Now, meeting on Sunday, why do we do that? Uh, Have we taken the mark of the beast? No. Um, The reason the early church started meeting on the first day of the week, which by the way is Sunday, um, is because the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the grave, he rose on a Sunday morning. Before that, the religious people all met on Sabbath, uh, Saturday, uh, Friday night to Saturday night. That was the Sabbath day. But the church started worshiping on Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave. Um, and then people that get all tied up on that, they're missing the point of the whole Sabbath. Jesus came. So I don't believe it matters which day you use as long as you enjoy. And I say that very deliberately. You know, it's a get to, not a got to. The Lord says, I made your bodies. And as it turns out, you work better taking one day and seven and resting. Um, so 1 Corinthians six twelve reminds us, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought into the power of any. And some of you maybe have missed the point if you're thinking, I'm gonna work seven days a week and get ahead. And meanwhile, you're exhausted and stressed out and full of anxiety. And this is where this comes in. You can do whatever you want, but it's not gonna be good for you. If you go work seven days a week for the next 20 years, don't be shocked when you're wiped out and have a heart attack and high blood pressure. And um, did you know, it's funny because um, the Bible has so much to say, um, you know, about this, like we talked about earlier, Jesus making this clear. He said that the Sabbath was made for man. It's for our blessing, our benefit, not man for the Sabbath. So um, all all that to say, you can do what you want, but you're gonna work yourself to death if you don't follow the Lord's plan. And you also say, well, what does a Sabbath look like? Should I not carry my false teeth? Well, that's just dumb. That's, we've already established that. I would argue that the Sabbath needs to look differently than your other six days during the week. You know what I've found? For some of you guys, if you work in a cubicle all day, every day, uh, typing on a computer all day, for some of you, maybe the biggest rest you could do is on that day of rest, go out and dig a ditch. Like that might be more restful to you than sitting. Like I, I, do, I do think that rest is somewhat of a relative term uh, compared to uh, what you actually need versus what we might be legalistic about. But as it turns out, science is only now catching up to what the Bible's been saying for years. Forbes did an article uh, a year ago, um, the benefits of resting and how to unplug in a busy world. And they make the argument that one in seven days, as it turns out, is a good uh, you know, repetition. And they don't quote the Bible or anything. They're saying, we learn from science that your body, your body seems to be working on a seven day cycle and you need one day in seven. Like it's a funny article when you know what the Bible actually says. But even secular scientists and medical professionals are saying you should rest at least one day in every seven. Um, as a musician, I don't know. I don't know music theory. I really don't. I don't know how. A lot of times when I'm playing with the worship team, I have to say, "Now, uh, just just what? what you know, even if they tell me what key it is, it's not super helpful. Just tell me where my finger goes, and then I can play really fine with you." Uh, I don't know music stuff, but I do know this: um, uh, somewhere on those pages of music, there's these little things called rests. And um, and as it turns out, a rest, and I, I, I don't know what these mean, honestly, other than um, if you took all of these out of music, then you'd have chaos musically. 
Um, that's what I do understand about music. It's all about the rest that give the music texture and, and actually doesn't stress everybody out. You have to have these little rests in music. I think your life is like a big song that needs rests. And if you're not taking rest, don't be shocked if you find chaos. Um, and that's why Hebrews 4.11 makes the argument, let us labor therefore, this is what a dichotomy, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So uh, the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as our Sabbath rest. We, we get to keep the Sabbath. This is a get to, not a got to. So the first case um, that these Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees are gonna make against Jesus is the case of the corn. Uh, him picking corn on the Sabbath day. The second case is the case of the man with a withered hand. Uh, let's take a look, verse nine. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, what man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep and if it fall into a pit on a Sabbath day, he will not lay hold on it and lift it out. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Um, so we looked at this on Sunday. If you missed that, you can kind of get caught up on that. But the Pharisees are now following Jesus around. That's what we learned you know, tonight as we looked at this in depth on Sunday. But the Pharisees are following Jesus around, just looking for ways that they might accuse him. Um, but um, these Pharisees were there to watch and be critical. That's one thing you and I should never do when we come to church to watch and be critical of the church of Jesus Christ. But that's what they were doing. Um, but, but I love that the Lord healed this guy. Verse, um, verse 11, um, you know, we talked about how the Lord says, it's okay if you're gonna do something good on the Sabbath, pulling a sheep out of a hole, um, forget about the letter of the law. It's more about the spirit of the law, which is that same thing, love over the law. And then verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Interesting, um, just a freebie for you, for you that were raised in church traditions and liturgy and various um, you know, church traditions, and especially the church traditions that have all kinds of history that they put over the Bible, you know, traditions of liturgy over what the Bible actually says. Um, and you know, one of the things I'm always noticing is, and this just makes me think of it, here's the religious leaders holding a council and what's their, what are they getting together to hold a council for? How they can kill God. And what I found as a somewhat of a student of church history, whenever there were councils held in the church history, a lot of them were just as bad as this. Like, you know, um, where, where did some of the practices come from that, you know, uh, people practice like praying to the saints or praying to Mary or exonerating Mary above? Like, like there's, there's some councils that were had and some harebrained ideas from men that, that actually didn't really read their Bibles. They just came up with their counsel and they made some decisions. And I would say, watch out for counsels and decisions. Um, you know, what they should have done is taught the scriptures. Had these religious guys dug deep in their own scriptures, they would have recognized this is the Messiah. This is the one we were looking and waiting for. But because they were so stuck in their stupid counsels, they missed the whole thing. I, I think that's a tradition. 
Um, and that's why eighth and Greek, we don't have committees, we don't have councils, we don't do any of that stuff because the Bible doesn't really con- confirm councils as being a good thing. What you do see though is a plurality of leaders seeking the Lord, reading the Bible and searching the scriptures to see what does the Bible actually say. That's the healthier sort of model. Um, now, uh, it's interesting because here, uh, you know, um, they're, they're looking how they might destroy him. But there's a couple things that I find interesting that I, I wanna point out before we move on. And that is, um, notice a couple things here. Um, the first thing I want you to notice is notice that Jesus was never accused of not being able to heal people. Like, should that have given them pause? Like Jesus is, did you see what it says in our text here? It says, and Jesus went and healed them all. Verse, verse 15, check it out, verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence and um, great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And one thing you don't hear the Pharisees, the Sadducees and all these guys, you never hear them saying, well, he never, he's not really healing people. He's just doing the fake thing, throwing wheelchairs off the stage, doing some magic tricks or whatever. No, they don't even, they don't even try to argue that because it was so indisputable. There was no question that Jesus was going around healing everyone. Um, and, and so what do you do with people that are going around healed? Um, we're gonna see these guys are gonna say, well, that's the power of Satan. That's perfectly logical. Satan always wants to heal poor sick people. That's, that's the way Satan rolls. Um, no, Satan's the author of sickness and disease. Um, that's the truth. Um, but you know, the greatest adversaries aren't question, questioning Jesus's you know, ability in miracles and healing. Um, but here's what I gotta say. So even the local guys were trying to figure out how can we get rid of Jesus? But fast forward 2000 years later, and so-called theologians today on the Discover Channel or History Channel. They're constantly trying to explain away the miracles of Jesus. If, if you don't know that, that's, watch out for that. And there's these ridiculous arguments that these guys make. And these guys are 2,000 years removed. The critics who hated Jesus and wanted to kill him, you think they would have been able to you know, debunk his healing and all these people running around being healed. But these people couldn't do it and they were local to that time and they saw it with their own eyes. Fast forward 2,000 years later and the Jesus seminar with their cardigans and their pipes puffing away. Well, we know that Jesus didn't really heal people and, and we know the feeding of the 5,000. Well, it was actually, as Barclay writes in his commentary, uh, you know, it was actually the people, they, they said, oh, we don't have any food, we're all gonna starve. And then the disciples found this little kid with five loaves and two fish. And so they, they, the kid shared his lunch, but it was so kind of the kid to share his lunch with the 5,000 that Jesus you know, broke the bread and it just swelled up in everybody's heart and they were actually hiding food up their sleeves. And they had bread loaves up their sleeves. This is what commentary Bar- Barclay says. And they, out of the kindness of their hearts, they all started, because the kid, they all started sharing their food. And then afterwards, they had enough food to feed, feed everybody. Dumb. They're always trying, trying to explain it. I love the story of the, the guy and the college professors telling the class, well, actually the Red Sea was parted, but it really wasn't. It was, it was actually a little typo in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. It was not the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea is only you know, six inches deep. It's more of a swamp. And so the people went over that. And one, one guy in the background is like, praise the Lord. And the, the professor said, what are you saying? I'm saying it wasn't a miracle. It was just a six inches of water. He said, praise the Lord. He said, why are you saying praise the Lord? It's not a miracle. He said, praise the Lord. The whole Egyptian army drowned in just six inches of water. (laughs) That's a miracle. (laughs) People that try to explain away 
um, you know, the healing of the le leper. Well, as it turns out, I've heard this, I read this somewhere. Uh, the bacteria of the leper was on decline back in those days. And so they were starting to see, you know, no, the lepers were uh, alive and well and, and hurting badly. Um, Jesus, you know, uh, raising from the dead is one of the ones they try to explain away. Well, he didn't really die. He, he merely swooned, these scholars so-called will say. He didn't really die. They took him off the cross and they thought he was dead. Like the Romans didn't know what dead looked like. The Romans were experts in death. Um, and the description of Jesus having a spear in the side with blood and water coming out of his side. And you know, like the whole thing is so ridiculous. But he, he and, and if you believe the swooning theory, you believe they, they wrapped him in grave clothes, stuck him in a tomb, rolled a 2,000 tons or 2,000 pound stone over the opening of the tomb and put a, a group of army Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. And after three days, Jesus was feeling so much better because the moist, cool, damp air um, that he felt strong enough, uh, feeling so much better. He got out of the grave clothes and he, and he you know, felt good and enough to roll the 2,000 pound stone away and fight off all the Roman soldiers and say, I'm back. Which one would be a greater miracle? I don't know, they're both amazing miracles. Uh, but I think you have to be insane to believe the, the swooning theory. And on and on it goes. Watch out for the explaining away of miracles in the Bible. I think that's always a big goof. Um, so um, again, I like to say, and, and this is why the creation versus evolution thing is such a huge deal. If you believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the rest of the Bible's a piece of cake. Parting of the Red Sea, cleansing of the leper, raising the dead, no big deal when you can say, let there be light, and brrr, there's the sun. If you can do that, then everything else is pretty simple after that, if you ask me. So believing Genesis 1-1 is, is kind of the, the front lines of the battle when it comes to explaining away the power of God. So notice number one, the Pharisees never question if Jesus can heal people. Notice number two, they also have to recognize Jesus is moved with compassion toward those that are hurting. Meanwhile, they could care less about those who are hurting. The man with the withered hand would just be a prop for them to sort of trap Jesus. Um, and so they were always looking for some kind of technicality of how they could nail Jesus down, but they could care less about this man with the withered hand. And I love that about Jesus, that he actually had compassion and, and they, they can't accuse him of not having compassion. He was the compassionate one. They were the ones who were not compassionate and they were trying to win with the technicality. And let me just say, when those guys stand before God, they're not gonna win with a technicality. They're not gonna say, well, Lord, technically, uh, in front of God, the judge of all judges, they're not gonna be able to explain that away. Um, but instead, um, you know, Jesus was, of, of, of course, living above reproach, and he walked uh, uh, in a way that was perfect and innocent, and love and compassion was part of his deal. Um, you know, Jesus was found with no fault in him. Can you imagine? I mean, uh, I think there's one guy that has to go through some of this, such scrutiny. The president, if you run for president of the United States, you better have a squeaky clean record because they're gonna find stuff on you. If they don't find stuff on you today, they'll make stuff up on you or whatever. But uh, I just feel like, man, these are days. Can you imagine uh, like if, if people were scrutinizing your life? Well, this is what they were doing with Jesus. By the way, they did this with Daniel in the Old Testament. Remember when the um, Chaldeans, the soothsayers, magicians, and they all said, let's find an occasion against Daniel. And so they watched him. And the only thing they could find that he was guilty of, praying three times a day to his Lord. So they tried to get him on a technicality. And those guys, well, the Lord judged them and they ended up being food for lions. All that to say, watch out. 
Um, I've noticed there's two kinds of people, those that are trying to look and accuse others and technicalities and finding fault. And then there's Jesus and those who would live for Jesus, having compassion and keeping their hearts pure and clean. But I love it. Jesus healed them all. Um, And then verse 16, and he charged them that they should not make him known. Uh, Why the secrecy? Um, There's two reasons. I, I, I touched on this briefly on Sunday, but I didn't really give you the full answer. Um, One reason we know Jesus had secrecy is because his time had not yet come. Mine hour has not yet come. There was a time where they were gonna try to exalt him as king, but there's also a time they were gonna raise him up on the cross and crucify him. So Jesus was dealing with the timing of all this stuff. But also there's another reason, and it's in the next verse, to fulfill prophecy. Check it out. It says in verse 17, he says, you know, verse 16, charge them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, behold, my servant who I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. And he, um, uh, well, let's, let's stop right there. Judgment to the Gentiles? Well, if you have a newer translation, what's the word there? Justice, right. And you say, which one is it, judgment or justice? The answer, yes. Um, The word judgment is an interesting one. Now, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 42, verses one through three. Um, It says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, um, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment. Now, mark that word judgment in in Isaiah or in your text of Matthew here. Um, judgment to the Gentiles, he shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. That's, that's this fulfilling of why he doesn't want his name exalted in front of everybody. A bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. We'll talk about that in a second. But mark the word judgment because the word judgment in the Hebrew text of Isaiah is this word um, uh, um, uh, mishpot, Uh, in the Hebrew, which means judgment or justice. And most of the translators, the modern translations, and I agree with them, would say this is the word more, probably better representing the the word justice because it's a big difference. Judgment for the Gentiles or justice for the Gentiles. That's what Jesus has come to do. He didn't want his name being thrown around all over the, the world at this point yet because he still had a lot of work to do before his hour would come. And one of those things is more work with the Gentiles. And praise the Lord for that. Christianity wasn't just for the Jews, it was also for the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. It's funny, we can, we can talk about this, I don't have time tonight, but you know, the, the Gentiles took Christianity and said it's no longer for the Jews, it's just for the Gentiles. But that's wrong, just like it was wrong for the Jews to say you know, um, our faith, he, Old Testament is just for Jews. Um, they got it wrong and a lot of Gentiles got it wrong. Jesus is for Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, one new man, read Ephesians chapter two. And so the word justice is better is what Jesus is referring to. So that part of the fulfilling of why Jesus said, don't go tell everybody, is he still had a lot of work to do and amongst those Gentile people. And then read on, we're almost done for tonight. But in verse, um, verse 19, um, it says, continuing quoting from the Isaiah passage, um, he shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment into victory. Um, and his name shall be, uh, shall the Gentiles trust. Boy, don't you love that? 
We know that's what a prophecy that is, that the Gentiles would trust the name of Jesus. And that's us, that's, we made the Bible. People in Portland in 2022, we're the Gentiles who trust in the name of Jesus. But I, I'd like to finish with just kind of a thinking through this bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking flax shall he not quench. What is he talking about there? Um, it's part of this compassion that we see and mercy, uh, rather than sacrifice, mercy. Part of the theme of who Jesus really is is being summed up in the prophecy from Isaiah about the bruised reed and the smoking flax. Um, and I think that might be best illustrated, um, by the way, in, in sort of, by the way, flax is used for like a wick for the fire, but it's not useful. Uh, you know, if it starts to smolder, you throw it out. Um, and that's the idea. You, you know, you're a waste if you're a smoking flax. Flax. If you're a bruised reed, a reed was taken to use for basket weaving or for measurement. They used a reed for like a tape measure. But if it was broken or broken in the middle, it would be worthless for anything. So he's talking about that which is seen by the world as worthless, the bruised reed or the broken reed and the smoking flax. But um, there's, a, there's a guy who uh, was looking for something to do one day and he went into an art museum where he saw an exhibit um, and um, it, was, it was a, a series of paintings um, that I, I think is kind of interesting, and I'll try to explain it. Um, and the exhibit was called A Bruised Reed Smoking Flax. That was the name of this exhibit. The first picture, painting number one, was called If You Will, You Can. And it showed a bandaged man, and you could see some of his fingers were missing, and he, and he was horribly, horribly disfigured. And you see this mother with a child covering the child's mouth, running in horror from the man. That was, that was painting number one. Um, painting number two shows Jesus touching the man and suddenly his fingers are back in the next painting and he's healthy and is, he's restored. And, and that's, that one's, the second painting is called I Will. So the first one was called If You Will, You Can. Does that ring a bell? Remember the healing of the leper? He says, if you will, you, I know you can. And, and Jesus said, I will. So that was the second painting. The third painting was um, called If Only. And it shows this woman who is pale and looks very unhealthy and weak. And she's leaping across a, a crack in the crowd, trying to inch away from touching Jesus's garment. That's painting number two. But painting number three is called Take Heart. Um, there's no more crowd. And she's uh, flush and healthy in her. And there's peace and health in her face. And that one's called Take Heart. If you remember, that's what Jesus said to the woman who was, had the issue of blood. Painting number five, um, swear to God you won't torture me, shows a man in a terrorizing face with chains breaking. Um, he was the demon-possessed guy in pain, screaming out change. And then the next painting was called Peace, where the chains were broken and the guy's standing there fixed up. And, and on and on. Uh, I love uh, painting number seven was a woman scantily clad, laying on the ground uh, and men with rocks looking fiercely at her, ready to throw rocks at her. And painting number eight, the rocks were all on the ground. There was no one else there except for one man kneeling down and picking the woman up. And then the last painting, painting number nine and painting number 10, the last series, just had a simple reed um, and a piece of flax burning um, on the painting. That was it. And then the, the last painting was a blank canvas and the reason that the artist did that, the blank canvas was, that's you. You're the bruised reed. You're the, the, broken, or the, you know, the broken reed or the burning you know, flax, smoking flax. Uh, 
And, and you know, I've noticed that people are bruised and friends have bruised you with anger and loved ones have said harsh words to you. And, um, you know, you've had spouses who've betrayed you and some of you have been, you know, ripped off and broken by others. And, you know, your life, maybe you're down by your own failures, your own mistakes, or maybe it's religious legalism that bruised you or broke you spiritually. But the thing that I love about Jesus, that's what he's all about. You're the person that he's here for. The bruised reed, the smoking flax. He's the one who lifts you up, takes you out, and heals you of your wounds. And even though the rest of the world's horrified, freaked out, throwing rocks, whatever it is, Christ is the one who makes it all better. I love this verse. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment into victory. And in, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Amen. Lord, we're just thankful for this section of scripture. And as we um, finish up tonight, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us on this issue and help us to know you intimately in that way that these people who are lepers and diseased and sinners, how Lord, you loved on them and had compassion. We see what religious legalism did to those people, how they didn't help them at all. But we see how love and mercy um, how that changed lives, Lord. And so we look to you, the author, the perfecter of our faith. I pray that we'd not be pushing religion on people, but showing people Jesus, the one who has compassion and mercy. Lord, we love this story because it just shows us who you really are and your character and nature is revealed. So may we be worshipful, Lord. I thank you for your goodness. And for those who don't know your goodness, may this study tonight just once again peel back whatever preconceived ideas people have and that they would see you as, as you really are, merciful, kind-hearted, full of gracious words and love. We're so thankful for that, Lord. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.